Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I'm a powerlifter, strength coach. I run Highland or do Highland Games. I run Strength Guild, uh, Lift for Hope, and USSF. Hey, um, news. We have a, a ton of news. Some of it's Iron Radio news. Some of it's some science stuff. And then uh, Phil and I will tackle the topic. Um, this first one, I just wanted to make a comment. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Uh, listeners sometimes worry I get a question about heavy metals. And, you know, if I take fish oils all the time, it, will I end up with more mercury in my body and other heavy metals? Uh, and this is just a personal example. But uh, I buy fish oils at Sam's Club, and then I take the Flame Out product that the Biotest guys have because I was instrumental in actually inventing that stuff. But the point is... Um, I had some weird tingly symptoms, and I was talking to, the, to my physician about it, and we were saying, you know, is this could this be heavy metal poisoning? I mean, I'm like, I don't know what I could possibly be exposing myself to in order for that to be true, but why don't we run some tests? So uh, long story short, no heavy metal contamination of any kind, and I take about, I'd say, three or four grams uh, I'd say three grams is a safe way of just EPA and DHA, just the active ingredients every day. So I take a pretty whopping amount of fish oils. And I can't say that's true of everybody, but at least those mm-hmm. two brands, uh, no heavy metal contamination at all. In fact, there was an, a researcher at the Cleveland Clinic a couple of years ago. He said he's not surprised that there's no heavy metal contaminants from fish oil because those heavy metals are not very lipid soluble. So you wouldn't expect them to be in an oil. Uh, so... There's that. So if you're taking lots of fish oils and you ever wondered, um, at least there's a case example. The other thing is, um, let's see, Sean Choi, uh, who won our 250th episode contest, your mug has been sent. I wasn't able to send a whole package of goodies like I promised, so I upped the goody nature of the mug. So it's the sweetest mug. Uh, Well, yeah, it's just about the sweetest mug I think we've ever sent. So this is, <laughs> it's worth it. So look look in the mail, and if you don't get it, uh, Sean, uh, let me know or let us know on the, the Facebook page. So nice. I think you'll dig that. As far as the science news goes, um, this first bit is, uh, I did some digging. If you remember recently, I talked about Stu Phillips, who's a very famous Canadian researcher from the Toronto area, and he was saying that um, 30 grams of protein looks like enough to inhibit um, lipolysis, you know, fat breakdown and mobilization in the body. And um, so I, w- I went digging, and um, I just want to share this. This is from Erdman and colleagues, Hormone Metab Research 2010, effects of carb and protein-rich meals on exercise-induced activation of lipolysis. Now, this is in obese subjects, so guys that carry more fat, but some of our listeners do. It says, in normal weight subjects, it's well known that stimulation of plasma insulin levels by a carbohydrate meal can inhibit fat breakdown. 
and it goes on to say they they took 20 guys with extra body fat they had them uh cycle for 30 minutes either in a fasted state 30 minutes after a carb or protein rich meal or 120 minutes after the carb meal so bottom line is following the meal the exercise uh, led to an attenuated uh, but still significant increase in glycerol levels from the protein meal so protein it, it blunted the fat breakdown a little but not a lot uh, it also says waiting two hours before doing your uh, ste- you know light steady state kind of cardio stuff like the hikes we talked about last week or just you know walk jog like we do um, waiting two hours and also there was only a little bit of uh, inhibition of the fat breakdown it says however the 30 minutes after um, after carbs is not recommended it just blunts the insulin release blunts fat breakdown so badly that um, if you're really out to directly burn fat that's just really not the way to go now that may be obvious to some of you I mean I did some research with uh, some friends at the Cleveland Clinic a couple of years ago with sports drinks but and it showed the same thing right I mean let's face it how many armchair quarterbacks probably go dra- grab a, a Gatorade on the way to the gym or how many I don't know even women uh, not just women, women are guys who they're going to go do their cardio on a stepper or whatever it might be. And boy, you don't want to have a sports drink on your way to do that, you know. So it's your body's going to release a little bit of insulin. You're going to burn the carbs you just drank, etc. So um, I was just curious about the effect of protein because Rob said he was surprised that yeah. protein could blunt, you know, fat breakdown. <clears throat> but so it, a little, but not a lot. Uh, so that's that. Here's a follow-up I just wanted to share. Um, it's called The Obscurity of Science. Do the hungry live longer? And we've talked about this a few times. Um, but this is back in the news. This is April 2nd, uh, 2014. It says, in March, the health media wrote a new about a new link between old age and calorie restriction. We were told that hunger is healthy. Now, our listenership is not going to like to hear this stuff, right? But it's, it's funny to see what researchers are trying to prove from this. <clears throat> it says, we've talked about this since the 1930s. Um, there's a particular researcher, Margot uh, Adler, and her hypothesis is based on animal studies. Now, if you just say that, you're like, oh, well, okay, animal studies, I guess I can buy that. But if you dig deeper, it's on narid flies. I think that's how you say it. They're flies. So there's a lot of critique about this sort of thing, um, that some of the life extension that she might be seeing in the flies is just a lab artifact. In other words, there's no predators in the lab. There's no pathogens. You know, there's no temperature fluctuation. So lots of things that would kill flies are not killing flies in the lab. And so that's what some people are saying. Now, you might argue, well, wouldn't the control group be treated the same way as the calorie restriction group? Maybe, but they're afraid that it's having some contaminating impact. Um it says the ratio of protein to carbs is the main driver, says Adler. And she was one of the ones, I believe, behind the protein causes cancer thing that people were flipping out about recently. However, it says James P. Gibbs, who's an applied ecologist at the State University of New York College, disagrees. He says, I'm alarmed at the assertions toward human health. Rodent models are reasonable proxies for humans, but the physiologies of insects and humans are utterly different. Uh, and then it goes on to actually say a new study published today in Nature and um, well, Nature Communications. It says it comes from 25 years worth of data from rhesus monkeys. Now, listeners can probably put two and two together. Monkeys are 
pretty close proxies for people, actually. Chimps share over 99% of our genes, I believe. So anyway, a new study published uh, basically goes on about this. It too concluded that calorie-restricted diets were linked to longevity. The calorie-rich diets were 290% more likely to suffer disease, and they had a threefold increased risk of overall death in the heavy calorie-consuming monkeys compared to the calorie-restricted monkeys. It said, however, this contrasts with results from a very similar study conducted by the National Institutes of Health uh, that also used rhesus monkeys, and they found no effect of calorie restriction on length of life. So I think the jury is still out, but the media continues to be all over this. I don't know. We seem to have this obsession with starving ourselves as good, like it's a I don't know, self-punishing, purifying thing. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says some of these lab, uh, you have to be very careful because some of the models, if they use the wrong kind of animal or some lab artifacts, it, they can fall apart in the real world. Uh, this guy says, I'm not saying science doesn't mean anything in the field, but there can be a hybrid between field measurements and lab experiments, and we need to get closer to what really happens you know, in, the, in real life. So I don't know. Uh, the monkey stuff, it looks like it's almost 50-50, and the fly research makes me wonder if I would even pay attention to that much at all. I don't know. Yeah. Starve little flies and they live a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. I, I will keep my fingers on the pulse of all this and try to see what I come up with. And we've talked about this before. I mean, nobody's going to keep us from eating lots of food anyway. So maybe it's a moot point. But it is interesting to think that if you overeat, you know, maybe it drives up your thyroid, your metabolic rate goes faster or or whatever, you know, and it just burns you out faster. Um, it, it may be, but I think a lot of listeners rather burn out than fade away anyway. One more. Uh, scientists progress in the quest to grow muscle tissue in labs. This is by Shirley Wang. Um, but Shirley Wang says there, uh, Duke University researchers and other scientists are making strides in growing muscle in the lab that not only repairs itself, but is, exhibits strength similar to normal muscle. It says scientists have already been successful in developing ears, windpipes, and livers, among other body parts. Uh, They say muscle is more challenging for a couple of reasons, and I'm going to mention it in a minute. Uh, It says skeletal muscle is the most abundant tissue in the body. It's typically very good at repairing itself because of the, the stem cells and satellite cells and whatnot that are built in. It says, but when you injure a muscle, scar tissue forms, and that's collagen, and that doesn't contract, you know, so you get weaker from scar tissue in a muscle. And that's why they're interested in using stem cells mostly to fix this. I go on, keep going on about stem cells, but they're changing medicine. It says, um, the hurdle here, uh, if there is an injury, is to try to get new muscle tissue that can form quicker than the scar tissue does, says Herman Uh, Vandenberg, a pioneer in the field and a professor emeritus of pathology and lab medicine at Brown University. It says to develop the muscle, both the structure of the muscle tissue and how it's connected to the blood supply and nerves are critical. And I think we've touched on that before, that uh, muscles are slaves to the nervous system. You know, the nerves that innervate the muscle fiber direct it to act one way or another, and it'll, it'll change. Um, It says muscle tissue, however, is dense and made of large muscle cells that all need to be aligned in the right direction. If you don't align them properly, um, they can't generate force properly. And those of you out there who are really into muscle physiology, I mean, there's the penation, you know, that sort of diagonal angle of the muscle fibers that's important to strength. 
uh, and that sort of thing. Not all muscles are highly angled like that. Like your biceps is fairly longitudinal compared to your rectus femoris or some other ones where they've got all the fibers at an angle. Anyway, so they have to be very careful with that sort of stuff because if you're off with the structure, you're off with the function, says Nenad Bursak, a professor of biomedical engineering at Duke. Um, Dr. Bursak and his team apparently, um, including a graduate student, Mark Juhas, demonstrated for the first time in animals that they could use stem cells to create muscle tissue that repaired itself and grew stronger. So it says first they took muscle tissue from rats and they isolated it with stem cells. Uh, Then after growing some more stem cells, they basically mixed it with a substance containing fibrinogen. And that's typically found in blood clots, right? So it's going to help hold all this stuff together. And then they stressed um, the natural muscle tissue and applied the stem cells, and the fibers did regenerate. I mean, there was regeneration. It says the muscle regained 80 to 90% of its strength. Now, remember, if this was just a big injury, like a stab wound or whatever, a tear, and it was just collagen and scar tissue, it wouldn't be like this. It wouldn't be all flexing and contracting and, you know, and whatnot. So it says within two weeks, uh, the tissue increased in strength threefold, uh, into the range of normal muscle strength. This article finishes, I won't bore you, but it, with human stem cells, they're actually doing this with people too, mixing with the right concoction of biological chemicals to try to stimulate growth. And uh, apparently they're getting really good results with how strong it can develop. So um, the take-home message here, this this technique of actually using stem cells to regrow muscle right in your body, you know, if you have a, a injury, Uh, It says it's four to five years away. But the whole idea of scar tissue uh, screwing with your lifts, either making them weak or painful, uh, I think four or five years, if this is correct, that's going to be gone. It's going to be pretty cool. All right. So sorry about the uh, soliloquy there, but we're going to go to break. And when Phil and I come back, we're going to talk about speed work, uh, a little bit of the physiology and... uh, you know, we'll talk about how Phil uses it with himself and his clients and how it applies to powerlifters and uh, bodybuilders. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, If you simply Google CRC Press in protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for 69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the 99.95 cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, Lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, 
Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everybody, we're back after the short break there. And I just want to bring up a couple of things. First thing was, um, it's kind of all in the news right now, the ultimate warrior passed. Um, well, that passed on, I guess is that what, what we should say. Um, reports are, I don't, there's no cause of death yet officially, but everything I've seen is he collapsed while walking to his car with his wife. Um, and then they rushed him to the hospital and he died. So one would guess from that heart attack or stroke. Yeah. Um, so that that would be the guess, but it was just it was the the weird thing is it was like three days after he got inducted into the Hall of Fame. <clears throat> so they had just done it that weekend. He got into the Hall of Fame and then he passes. Which Hall of Fame? So the, the World Wrestling. I just wanted to be sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. Not the not like yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, I guess a shout out to that. You know, I mean, it's too bad. It's, yeah, heart attack or maybe aneurysm. Not yeah, many things make yeah. you just drop right there. But giving his. Uh, his history, you know, I've heard yes. the big time wrestlers they live hard lives, and I don't just mean yeah. the, you know, performance enhancing drugs, but I think they live some hard lives. Yeah, yeah, behind the scenes, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of partying going on and a lot of hard lives. So, um, other than that, the the next thing was I want to give a shout out to one of our listeners, uh, Corey Tuck. Corey is currently right across on the other side of the wall from me, getting coached by my wife. He joined the gym today. Cool. So we had an Iron Radio listener reach out, and uh, he joined the gym. So figured I'd give a shout-out real quick, and that's about it. So well, now we can go to the topic of the day. Right on. So speed, <clears throat> speed work. Uh, there's two major things, and I actually thought about this. I was flipping through uh, an NSCA book and some studies recently, mm-hmm. and you know, in class, I was talking about proprioceptors and how you can manipulate them, you know. And now I know it's controversial how much speed work really helps. So we're talking about literally using loads at which you're supposed to generate the most power output, right? Not the best yeah. force or strength, but power, you know, yeah. so speed strength. Yeah. And it's oftentimes reported in the literature like 30 to 50% for stuff like bench and squat. Mm-hmm. So it's light enough that you get some bar velocity. And I think Fred Hatfield was talking about that too, right? It gets so heavy, then you don't, can't move the bar at all. There is no yeah. velocity. So let me ask you the first question would be, what, what's your opinion on on speed work? Is there a place for it? And if so, how much? In general, I fall in line with, uh, you know, Ed Cohn talked about this. They asked him a question on it. And I kind of fall in line with him on it. I, I don't do a lot of dedicated speed work. We just always try to move the bar fast. 
you know, so pretty much all the work we're doing is speed work. Um, it, it's something I try to ingrain in my clients, especially new clients. That's one thing, especially the women don't know how to do. It's like if you have 95 pounds on the bar, they'll put 96 pounds worth of pressure worth of effort out mm-hmm. just enough to stand up. And it's like, okay, move that fast for me, you know, make it as easy as possible. Um, and even when we're doing rep sets and stuff, I want people to go hard. You may get a few less reps, but I think you get a lot out, a lot more out of it. Um, you're, you're activating more, more muscle tissue for sure at, at the, at least the initial early reps. So, I mean, with that, I, I don't do a lot. Um, and with my power lifters, like I don't do dedicated speed work much. Um, my other athletes, I do some. Um, like my baseball players and stuff like that. Um, I, I think there's some validity to it in, in teaching them how to just be fast, be quick. Um, it's, it's one thing to be strong, but it doesn't matter if, you know, I have a pitcher that can deadlift 800 pounds if he can't pitch a ball fast. So, uh, you know, we've no got to be able to move submaximal loads very quickly. Okay, and, so let's let's break that down then. Um, okay. So as we were talking about before we hit record, of course, there's a – there's sort of a preload kind of idea where you build up some tension first and then there's actual, you know, like a bouncing stretch reflex like you might see in a yeah. pitcher, right? Yeah. So uh, what's your opinion on just preload, like a rest pause kind of thing where you get the tension going because, you know, to a, a physiology nerd, a muscle physiologist, mm-hmm. that's getting a little bit of like actin and myosin cross bridge forming. You know, you look at the cell level Things are starting to grab, and you do end up cranking up more force, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, because of that that pre-tension. Um, do you ever like that sort of thing where you pause first, or is most of what you do, you know, that sort of stretch reflex where you bounce a little no, bit? No, we'll do a lot of uh, – I, I, I actually enjoy pause squats, or I'm one of the few people that coaches raw lifters that likes box squats um, where we'll unload um, and then try and blast up as fast as you can. Um, I think you, you end up gaining a lot of strength in the bottom end, where, whereas if, if you get over-reliant on the stretch reflex, then uh, you see a lot of lifters that are weak in the bottom end from that once you take that away. And I, I've seen squats and whatnot go up um, and benches you know, from dedicated pause work and, and getting strong in the bottom and, and just being able to create a bunch of force, a bunch of power out of the hole. Mm-hmm. In so fact, I see a lot in there. Uh, I. I will try to post something uh, when I put this little link on our Facebook page. Uh, I've actually got some lab data that you can see a student who um, doesn't get any prior tension, you know, and what the lift is like. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens when they do preload, you know, where they're holding it under tension, and then what happens when they get like that whole stretch shorten cycle where they actually mm-hmm. bounce with it a little. And it's remarkable. I mean, this is very demonstrable in the lab. You know, it's mm-hmm. one of those things that you can see fairly readily. You know, sometimes lab activities, they don't always work out the way you want. But this is a pretty robust phenomenon. You know, mm-hmm. that when you do some that pre-tension or a little bit of that bounce, then you, you crank out more force and more velocity yeah. on the back end. You just do. Yeah, and it, it might be one of those studies that I, I was looking at the other day when, as it relates to the deadlift and teaching people how to preload against the bar instead of being loose mm-hmm. and how much more how much more uh, you know, activation and, and strength you can get from, from preloading prior. That's a great example. Um, yeah. You know how when people say, what do they say? Um, well, you say it all the time. Uh, treat lightweights like they're heavy. That's kind of what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Right? I mean, keep your form, stay tight, mm-hmm. you know, and that keeps that sort of 
Yeah, and I mean, attention. but I mean, as far as dead speed, speed, I don't know. Like I'd say, I think it's for a for a lifter, for a power lifter. Uh, I think it's no matter what your sport, it's not it's not a fast sport. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you've got to be able to move heavy, heavy load. And sure, getting fast is going to help, but I don't, I just don't see how sixty percent loads very fast for doubles is going to make you be able to move 102% for one very well. So I think there's got to be both. I mean, I think there's a place for it. I think it's, I would rather see somebody like doing what Ed Cohn talked about. And let's, let's just try and move all our loads really fast. If we're working with 80%, let's move 80% as fast and crisp as possible Mm -hmm. type of thing. Well, now we're talking about two separate things really here. One is the pause you know, mm-hmm. to get the prior tension or treating yeah. the bar like it's heavy. And the other is the acceleration out of the hole, mm-hmm. you know. And, yeah, I understand uh, what you're saying there. Now, isn't Louis Simmons big into the, the light days with the speed work? Yeah, he's big into speed work. Yeah. Well, light's There's a relative term, I know, but... The dynamic effort work is what he calls it. Okay. Yeah, <clears throat> everybody has to rebrand stuff these days, yeah. you know, and then create a little certificate out of it. Uh, and, again, I'm not ripping on him. I don't know the guy, but uh, <laughs> it's just par for the course, but... Yeah. Um, my guess is there's probably hoping some link that big type two motor units are also fast, you know, mm-hmm. so by moving fast, you're encouraging those, yeah. you know, you jump through that whole kind of size principle instead of firing the little type one wimpy motor units first, you kind of mm-hmm. jump to the big explosive ones and maybe the idea is there's carryover, you know, and there's some kind of uh, tra- yeah, transfer. Yeah, potentially just becoming more efficient. And you've seen the studies out about, you know, you, you take a an untrained person and compare them to an Olympic weightlifter or a powerlifter and the amount of muscle fibers that they can, you know, commit to a job at one point in time is, is there's a great variance in that where it's like 70% for a, an elite lifter and like 15% for the average person. So, uh, you know, moving those loads fast and just learning learning how to do it you know most people did, that's one of the things we lose as we age is the ability to jump and you know move quickly uh mm-hmm. so training that up a bit i think neurally can help too i've actually seen from a bodybuilding perspective even that the rate of contraction uh affects different you know muscle fibers and even the the subsequent growth may be enhanced i mean there's sort of two schools of thought you know one would be time under tension you know I do everything slow four count down two count up but yeah i would think if you want to get a combination of strength and size i think that's one of the things where they actually diverge a bit you know because mm-hmm. there's little doubt that lots of eccentric load and slow movements that might be pretty good for uh for hypertrophy but yeah if you want to actually move fast and i agree with you very much phil i think as we get older i have to remind myself to move fast in the gym sometimes mm-hmm. now not so much with um like I enjoy like a pause squat. I can't yeah. say I'm bouncing out up and down out of the hole. I don't know mm-hmm. how well my joints would appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I do think in other movements around the gym, I have to remember not to just focus on the negative all the time and move slowly. You know what I mean? Because I don't yeah. want to just. I don't know. I think that could you're risking a, an all show no go kind of yeah. scenario if you do that all the time, I think, with every movement. Um, so what movements do you think are good for this kind of thing? Let's not get into the this, this stretch reflex yet, but let's just think about the, the pause and go. Squats, I think, are... Squats, for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think the one thing I've found out you have to watch out for on squats is um, a, a long pause, you know, two or three seconds. Um, for too many weeks, I've seen it, a lot of people's knees start aching. Um, 
from that, oddly enough. Um, and then also for the competitive power lifter, give yourself plenty of time before a meet to get used to the stretch reflex again. Because um, you'll find yourself, it just feels weird. Um, and I, I ran it up too long at one point, and it was like coming back to the regular squats was, it was like I was just used to pausing down there, and I forgot how to gain my, my momentum out of the bottom. Oh, that's interesting. But, um, yeah. So give yourself a month before the meet to come back up. But I think that there's a lot of benefit in those. I'd alternate pause squats and box squats. Box squats where you unload at the hip. Um, not sitting way, way, way back like, like Louie and has his equipped guys do, but sitting down in a regular squat, unload the hips and fire up hard. Um, <clears throat> and then, yeah, squats, cleans. I think power cleans are good. I think anybody can do a power clean is a great way. Um, and, and power snatches, both of those. I mean, they're dynamic moves in and of themselves. Um, so, you know, they're made to move fast because uh, you're throwing a bar. Um, well, bench and, bench and deadlift both, I think, huh? Yeah, bench and deadlift both, yeah. I mean, you're especially the bench on a paused bench. Come down, pause, blast it up as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to help anybody, no matter if you're strong in the bottom or strong at the top on the lift. I think it'll help. Um, what is it, what's the old saying? Speed kills. Um, I like the squats against especially if we're talking light if i'm truly doing speed work with like my baseball players and stuff we'll use light band tension that way they can uh they can literally try to jump in the air but the band's not going to allow them to um mm-hmm. but they can because one thing i've found is you don't you're doing speed work on squats and if it's a lighter weight you'll automatically kind of lay off at the top half or the top quarter of the move so you don't leave the ground um, with the bands, you don't have to worry about that because it's going to keep you stapled to the ground um, from the variable tension there. You know, it's not gravity, so you you kind of kill that momentum. Yes. Um, and allows you to blast through and blast through the whole range of motion. You know, Phil, this is, sounds so, incredibly dorky, but there's a word for that, apparently. The tension, and it makes sense, right? As the band gets longer, there's more and more tension. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you can't get any. That's called hysteresis. Uh, and I was just talking about this in class the other day. I'm like... I've never really thought about this word before, but anyway, if cocktail party trivia, I guess people, that's called mm-hmm. hysteresis, is, you know, because it is neat to think, you know, that's why we have to be careful and we have to say resistance exercise and not just weight training because yeah. resistance comes in different forms and there's different curves in the resistance in the range of motion, you know, mm-hmm. and those provide very weird, um, like you said, it'll keep you stapled, but then you can, you can try to jump. That's a really neat way to say that. Yeah. But yeah, but it's not gonna allow you. So you don't have to. I, I'm not a big fan of jump, jumping squats. It, that's just a lot of beating on your knees and yeah. ankles. Oh yeah. Um, bench. I, I think it's a good move for it. What you need to watch out for is sore elbows. You see people lot, just hammering into extension. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a lot of sore elbows on that. I never got much out of speed work. I got a lot out of trying to move heavy loads fast. But uh, I'm also not the world's greatest bencher. So um, I push press. You know, I yeah. think it's a good one. Yeah. You know, um, maybe even, you know, push jerks or jerks um, where you're pushing and getting under the bar then. Um, that's very athletic move for sure. And, um, and the whole idea with all these things, of course, the pause is not you're not in an unloaded state. You know, you're yeah. in a, there's a lot of tension, you know, even yeah. if you've just got 30 or 50 percent. Um, but let's let's switch gears a little bit to the the full-blown, more bouncing, stretch-shorten cycle. There's actually like seven or eight different contributors as to why this drives velocity and force production and power output. Um, 
the obvious way to think about this, you're just talking about jumping, is nobody's going to try to jump and reach something up the wall mm-hmm. without doing a, a pre-movement. You know what I mean? Like a counter-movement. So you load and jump. I mean, if you just literally descended to 55-degree knee angle or something and you tried yeah. to jump as high as you could, you'd look like an idiot, you know, yeah. and you wouldn't go anywhere hardly. So <laughs> the, I think the coolest thing about this is that whole kind of spinal arc, you know, that everybody, you've got these proprioceptors and the ones that are embedded in your muscle uh, are intrafusal fibers. And the whole idea is it's a special kind of muscle fiber. It's not the extrafusal regular muscle fiber, but this can sense rate of stretch and when you stretch a lot, you might think that you're just bouncing that bar off your chest in the bench press, you know, or you're bouncing off your hamstrings in your ass in the squat. But it's not just elasticity. You're, there's actually a neural component to this. And the coolest thing is it's a spinal arc. And so it sends the message to your spine and then it drives it back out the motor neuron, you know, so you actually contract even harder. So it's, it is neural. It's not just the bounce or the elastic nature. That's part of it, too. Um, but I think that's a very cool idea that you could almost teach your motor nerves to fire harder because you're doing speed work. That's well, I mean, got to be part of the thinking, right? Yeah, and wouldn't it be, I mean, a case, let's take the squat an example. If I am fairly quickly moving down in the eccentric portion, and then all of a sudden I turn around... Um, and, and go up, wouldn't momentarily the load on me be much greater than the load on the bar? Because we've got an object that was formerly in motion going down. Right. You know what I'm saying? Because the fighting, force would transfer you know, from your, right, from your joint to joint to joint up to the bar, right? Yeah, well, and let's say, uh, let's say it's a 500-pound squat, and that, that bar's moving down at, I don't know, however many feet per second. Mm-hmm. That moment you turn it around, that bar still wants to go down. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Because it's traveling in that direction. So one would think momentarily as you went back up, that 500 be multiplied to something greater, uh, to what your body'd feel. And then you've, you know, yeah. and then you bounce out of there. Because you, yeah, uh, you've got to overcome that deceleration of the bar, of yeah, the bar uh, before the whole... you can pause it and then reverse it all, all exactly. in a split second within like a couple hundred milliseconds, maybe. So yeah. Which would, uh, you would think would, would, would add to the neural component, I would think. Because I mean, momentarily, who knows? Maybe you're, you know, your body's subjected to 750 pounds of pressure at that exact moment. And then, of course, a split second later, it's lighter, but your body's like, shit, this is 750 pounds, you know? Yep. Um, it's well, the whole object in motion wants to stay in motion type of exactly. thing. Exactly. Uh, uh, I remember a graph. Uh, I was just looking at this in the book the other day. I was showing it in class that um, it, there's this sort of classic. It's in the later chapters in the uh, NSCA book, but they show an average person and their rate of force development. So I I usually try to use the analogy, this is like a dragster, you know, like, let's pretend for a minute, and I don't know if this is true, somebody will probably correct me, but let's pretend a dragster and Andy Carr can both go 200 miles an hour, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, The dragster is going to, from zero to 60, it's going to do that in like a second or two, you know, it's going to do it a lot faster. So regardless of peak velocity, the dragster wins, uh, you know, as far as acceleration. And that's what rate of force development is. But anyway, this graph actually showed an average person and how soft they are out of the hole. You know, like early in the contraction, the first 200 milliseconds or so, they suck. Uh, and, then they, and then they show a strength athlete who does not do any explosive work. Mm-hmm. And they're better, but they're not as good as the person who does the explosive work, the power or speed work, and they are remarkable. 
I mean, yeah. literally in the first 100 or 200 milliseconds, they're already ahead of everybody else. And I've seen a little bit of this myself because even though I'm old <laughs> compared to some of my students, I can move the bar faster out of the hole. My rate of force development, when we hook ourselves up to a, the ballistic measurement system, which is like a Tendo unit, we talked about this before, but um, is actually better. And I think it's because I actually do some of that explosiveness mm. kinds of stuff. So I just think that's a very cool uh, graph because it actually shows that strength stuff alone it's not necessarily making you a dragster. Yeah, know? no, I agree. I mean, I got two examples of that in myself. Lately here, so about a month ago, I started doing cleans again. And I used to be fairly good at cleans when I practiced cleans. And I'm not nearly, I'm, I'm arguably stronger than I was before. But uh, throwing a bar up to my shoulders is not as easy as it was before. So, I mean, it, it, I've in a sense lost some some explosion, and the same thing. I, today I started uh, throwing Highland Games again, and let me tell you that three years not throwing doesn't do anything good to your throwing. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost about twenty five percent off all my throws. It was very depressing, but I know it'll come back. Now I just need to get out there and practice it, you know, and get, you know, I'm I'm not a dragster, I guess is what you say. I'm a big crane, you know. I'm very good at lifting things up, um, in those moves at least. Right in those and, moves, uh, yeah. And I need to get uh, I need to, I need to practice that skill again. Being able to turn everything on, thing on like right now in a split second, and move it very quickly. Um, right. Yeah. Now, so. I guess, uh, and this is where it comes out of trying to make this stuff as real world as possible. Is let's pretend that gr that graph is gospel truth, you know, and that guys that do power, and I don't mean like um, power lifter. You know, we've talked about this before. It's such an awkward term. Power lifter yeah. is. is an Olympic lifter. Those should be almost opposite. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's take the um, the power lifter in, in its real-world traditional sense about moving as much weight as possible, and you're not necessarily doing tons of explosiveness work. Mm -hmm. um, that graph says you don't develop the force. Your rate of force development in the first couple hundred milliseconds is not as good mm -hmm. as someone who does the explosive work. So what's the real benefit to the guy who can explode faster? What do you think? What's the real benefit? Yeah, like, um, would that pay off for uh, a power lifter compared to the baseball player, compared to, you know I, I mean? think, yeah, it depends on the goal. I mean, you got to keep the goal the goal type of thing, you know? So, I mean, like I was saying, I mean, if you can move, who cares if you can move 315 fast if you can't squat 700? If you're a power lifter, mm -hmm. you know, um, so I, I think you can give some time to it, but still the majority of your time needs to go to moving heavy loads. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Who cares what the power meter says? I don't care if, you know, I'm the, as far as the Tendo unit says that I'm the weakest person in my gym, as long as I'm still the strongest, you know, as far yeah. as maximal load goes. As far as the dragster <laughs> idea, acceleration, you know? right, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it just doesn't, nobody's at a power lift to me hooking you up to a tendo unit. Oh, the winner moves the bar the fastest. No, it doesn't go that way. So, right. I mean, you still have to have a, most of your attention as a power lifter turned on to aimed at moving heavy loads. Right. Um, now, with athletes, on the other hand, you know, let's say a baseball player, it doesn't, if, if I make one of my little baseball players that's 13 years old squat 315, if his if his performance on the field doesn't get any better, then I suck at my job, you know. So I'm doing yeah. the wrong thing. It doesn't matter if he can squat a thousand pounds if he can't play baseball, 
Yeah. So, you know, he needs to be able to move fast. And, you know, a lot of times I'll get away with that. The way we get away with it as strength coaches here is, you know, I got him an hour, an hour a day, three to four days a week. He needs to then be out. So we're concentrating on maximal strength. I'm hoping that they're out there sprinting and running and hitting balls and stuff, you know, for that type of work. That, that's speed work. I mean, sprints are speed work. Right. Um, and football players, you know, change direction and things like that, you know. So, but I mean, we do, I, like I said, I do do some speed work with, with my guys. Um, and, I, and then I also train them that whenever we're doing, we're doing lifts, we're, we're looking to do them very explosively. Yeah. And you know what, what so. you're saying is, I mean, we should probably do a show on periodization sometime and dive into this more. But I think the whole idea is, yeah, what you're saying is the coach not, yeah. not the strength coach, but the coach coach is the one doing a lot of the explosive. And, yes. and, and it becomes more and more specific to his sport. You know what I mean? Like, So your role is more off-season, and you might be doing some appropriate lifts that will translate. You know, mm-hmm. But eventually, he's going to be doing more and more actual on-the-field stuff. You yeah, know exactly. I mean? and I think periodize. that's where a lot of strength coaches mess up, is they try to – they forget that there's such thing as transfer. Mm-hmm. And they think they need to, to go in that they need to mimic the sport in the gym, and you don't. You know, I can use very simple moves. I can make them press and deadlift and squat and you know, bench and maybe some cleans and some overhead presses and some chins. Mm-hmm. And if we get really good at those, it's going to transfer out to the field. If that kid is also doing his sport, you know? yeah, it does make me torn because on one side, let's take that picture. And let's say you're going to work with some of the muscles that are involved, like some of his obliques or his pec, you know. Mm-hmm. And then if all you do is work his core and his pecs or, you know, whatever it may be in a very slow, heavy way, mm-hmm. on one side you might think, well, that still makes the kid so damn strong that everything he does on the baseball field is a joke. Everything yes. is more sub-maximal. And there's something to be yep. said for that. You know, on the flip side, I think there are people who would say, we don't want to train him to be slow. Yeah. Then his pitch will be slow. You know what I mean? So, um, but then the thing is, though, and that's why I demand all my athletes to, like, I had a pitcher that started here five months ago. And the first thing I made sure he was doing is you have to pitch while I make you stronger. Okay. Yep. Because mm-hmm. as long as you keep pitching, he's not going to lose that ability. He's going to get better at it. Now, if I took, say, a golfer. And we just quit golfing for six months, and I got him jacked. He'd go back, and his game would be all jacked up because mm-hmm. he'd be a totally different person. Mm-hmm. But as long as you play your sport through the strength and conditioning and the, the added muscle tissue and whatnot, it's going to stay there, and your body's right. going to adjust on the fly. But, you know, I'm you not know? just saying specificity, <clears throat> but literally, like, speed of the contraction. Yes. You know what I mean? So, yeah. and I, again, if anybody, our listeners, are familiar with uh, the literature on this, I'd love to see some, you know, recent studies about mm-hmm. – you know, how, how essential, and I'm going to give you an example. This is just off the top of my head, but let's take an Olympic lifter. Mm-hmm. If he is more explosive because he does this stretch reflex, he gets the stretch shortened cycle. And, you know, like you said, right before a meet, you got to remind yourself neuromuscularly to mm-hmm. actually descend and come up without a long pause, you know, yeah. invoke that stretch reflex, make the bar move with more velocity you could argue that a third of the way through that movement, let's say it's a snatch or something, or halfway through, and I know there's lots of skill and different joints involved, but mm-hmm. a third of the way or halfway through that movement, that bar is moving with more velocity. So it did behoove him to be a dragster, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, 
So, uh, and that's when I was saying different kinds of athletes, uh, that's sort of what I'm getting at. Whereas with a bench guy who's in a, you know, powerlifting meet, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Unless that's that dragster-like effect, that acceleration out of the hole that he did the speed work to get, unless that leads to a bigger total, you know, a mm-hmm. bigger mass. Then, yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, then it, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, somebody's or, somebody could be a slow bencher. Mm-hmm. And gr- they're a grinder, and they just yeah. grind it up. And you're like, God, how do you keep doing that? Yeah, exactly. And that's what you see. I see it all the time in here. I have several athletes that like use the deadlift as an example. Like me, after 550 pounds, from 550 pounds up to 750 plus, every freaking deadlift just looks the same. It doesn't look fast. Mm-hmm. It's just I slowly stand up with it. Um, I have other guys that'll work up. I, I have one guy in particular. You'll load seven hundred bar, hundred on the bar, and he'll lift it like he's going to clean it. You add seven ten, and it doesn't move. Wow! <laughs> oh, and yeah. it's like, wow! How the hell did that happen? Individual you know, differences. Just, huh? Yeah, it's just individual differences. And then I think bench is an example. If you have somebody that's long armed and their their lock their weakness is the lockout. If you make them faster in the bottom, there's more of a case that the momentum will carry them through. Hey, that's and, a great one. Yes. And they will. And they will have a, okay, now it did transfer to their sport, mm-hmm. you know. <clears throat> so so speed work out of the hole, again, with the whole stretch shortened cycle, almost like, I'm not saying bounce it out of your sternum, but, you know, but getting that stretch reflex, if you've got weak triceps, that could really help. Yeah. Because the yeah. bar's flying by the time you engage your triceps. Exactly. And then, you know, that momentum is going to keep up. And you see the same thing in squat. Most raw squatters don't fail. Just They don't sit down and just, boom, they're failed. It's usually about halfway up. Mm-hmm. So, and that's where we'll use pause squats and box squats. And you learn how to generate a lot of force out of the bottom. And then that odd middle ground where, you know, the quads aren't working as much and the butt and things are starting to take over. Uh, you're able to blast through that transition area mm-hmm. a bit. So and, it depends on each person's and, weak point because of their limb yeah. length and joints and everything else. Yeah, sure. And then you know, other sport athletes. I think it's. I think it's. You know, you got a track athlete. They got to be explosive. <laughs> well, know? sure. Yeah. Um, and because they're like judged, they're timed. <laughs> you yeah, know, a lot and of it's times. Job. Like, well, maybe you know, not a field I have, athlete. I have a track athlete. I had him here for a year, and track season was coming up. So a month out of track season, we started doing squats, speed squats with bands. Mm-hmm. He runs the hundred and two hundred. So I'd band up the squat, and he would literally do as many rock-bottom squats as fast as possible in 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, And yep. we're trying to build up his endurance to be able to run 200 meters again and do it yep. by giving balls out contractions. So, yeah. Well, I think specifically for um, the weight sports, there's at least three good examples. I think we're almost coming to a, a more of a conclusion here because whether it's a snatch or a bench press with somebody with weak tries – you know, or some of these different things we're talking about with the barbell, it probably does behoove you to be a dragster yeah, on some yeah. level, you know. I mean, due to momentum, all the lifts, you know, it helps to be fast, you know. So, I mean, because if you can get that bar moving quickly and you hit a sticking point, there's a good chance you're going to grind through it. Whereas if you're, you get into your sticking point and you're moving slow, you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> so now if your sticking point's on the bottom, now we got problems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, um, so. last question because uh, we're running out of time, is presumably you're going to do this early in a workout, like when you do any kind of power Yeah, technique? like I will – I think so. I mean, I think I think you need to get in the habit. Let's say it's squat day, and you're scheduled to squat 500. You know, I think from 
after the initial warm-up of maybe hitting the bar a few times and making sure you feel good, once you're feeling good, I think even with 135, you need to start moving it fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and do it on every warm-up. You know, you're going to blast through those warm-ups because if you can crush 315 and 405 and make it fast, mentally it's going to help you. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I would have to think, I'm no scientist, but neurologically one would think you're primed now to move heavyweight oh that's right yeah it's that whole <laughs> neural potentiation thing and i know yeah. that people argue back and forth on that a little bit but i see that a lot i see a lot of suggestions like uh if you have somebody warm up with a, a couple of push-ups and that's it versus somebody who does like a 50 percent of their one rep max first mm-hmm. you have that same guy come in each day you know so let's just say it's the same guy on the day that he does the 50 percent thing first or maybe a 75 percent thing first he sure looks potentiated to me. You know, that mm-hmm. bar just goes up yeah. better. You know, his maximum weights get better after that. And, you know, even even as somebody who's more interested in mass uh, than overall strength, I do the same thing, Phil. I mean, yeah. I'm like, instead of devoting a whole day to speed work, why would I do that? But yeah. I still like to be speedy, and yeah. that's exactly what you were saying. So 135, 2 and a quarter, 315, sometimes it's paused. Um I know. I'll admit, if I go over three fifteen, I don't bounce out of the hole. I can't. <laughs> I, can't I can't do that. Yeah. But I have fun getting being as as explosive and as yeah, accelerated as it's I fun can. Yeah, Especially in the squat. There's something about the squat. If you can just come up and make that bar almost bounce off your shoulders. Yes. It exactly. feels amazing. Yes, it <laughs> does. Yes, it does. And that's all relative. So. I mean, lift listeners. Even if you're only a two twenty squatter, yeah. you know, let's say you can max two seventy five. You're 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 not super strong guy. Yeah, if you can make 185 or two and a quarter, leave your traps. Yep. That's and you can do it safely. Obviously, you're skilled yeah. enough to hang on to it. That's fun. You yes, know? it is. Yeah. It just it feels good. You just own that weight. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you're going to do warm up sets, why would you waste time uh, with light weights that aren't going to make you grow, or in your case, not make you strong? You might as well get the speed work out of them. Yeah. You know, because you're in that 30 to 50 percent maximum power range anyway. So, yeah. yeah, do it early. Well, early. there's that arguable, I mean, uh, arguably you're actually moving, due to moving fast, you know, you're you're making a sub-maximal load maximal, right? In some ways, yeah, yeah. yeah. You're, you're generating the force. Certainly on your nervous system, you would think, yes. yeah, it's got to yeah. be similar. Because you're, I mean, something made that load move fast, and it was you pushing harder than the load that's an interesting point phil because even in research we were collecting some data we were playing around with caffeine and beta alanine uh, maybe i'll talk about it next week or in, coming up here but yeah and we were explaining whether you write it up for the research article or whether you're explaining it to the the research subject that's about to go um you're like okay maximal effort and it seems funny to say that when, when there's only 30 percent on the bar you know what i mean yeah. so is that a maximum well, well it's a maximum effort but it's not one rep max yes exactly well and there's a diff i found too that like when i'm teaching people the olympic lifts for some reason it's like the big thing to do now is teach people how to do olympic lifts with a piece of pvc pipe which weighs less than a freaking pound Mm -hmm. it's hard to give maximal force against something that's really light i mean it's like trying to throw in a piece of paper you know where i think it's a little heavier you know you get a little heavy weight you can throw it around um so I mean, you get into the 50s and 60s. Now we have something substantial that we can push hard against. Yes. You know, it's just like me trying to push on air. I can only push so hard against nothing. You give me a wall to push on, I can now push hard and cre- create force against it. But right. 
And what I was getting at is, you know, I mean, let's take a 315 squat. I could literally squat down and stand up by giving 316 pounds of pressure against the bar. Mm -hmm. It would move very slow. Mm -hmm. But let's say I sit down and give 500 pounds of pressure against the bar. You know, I'm still giving that effort. I'm just giving that effort against a submaximal load. I think that's where Louie gets into it, and that's why he he does that. He knows, okay, if I got a guy that can squat, you know, speed reps with 800, you know, make the bar bounce off his shoulders, he, he's, he's probably going to squat 1,000. Yeah. You yeah. know, <clears throat> so. And I think that's what, there's different ways to judge intensity. You know, the classic yeah. way, of course, for the strength coach is what percent of your one rep max. You work yes. in 85, 88, 90, 92, mm-hmm. but there's also rate of perceived exertion, right? Yeah. So if you got 30% on the bar, like you're saying, you know, light, but enough to feel it. Mm-hmm. Uh, that can be a very high rate of perceived exertion. So it's very intense from that perspective, just not from the raw weight perspective. Yeah. Yeah, so I can see where, and you know what? There's got to be a time for, uh, I don't know about the, the full stretch shorten cycle, but certainly with pause and preload and that sort of stuff. There's got to be a time where if you're doing speed work with that, it would take it easy on your joints. Yeah. Uh, yeah well, I mean, and, you're, unless you're... you said like your elbows or something, unless you're cranking awkward in the movement somehow. But I mean, as far as actual weights pounding your joints, you yeah. could get a lot out of a session with some pretty light poundages. Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think that's another thing is you're able to get, you're able to create a bunch of force without having to do it against a maximal load. So, um, all right, well, good stuff. I just thought speed work would be a fun topic. I, it'd be nice to get Rob in here because I don't know how he, how he addresses that. I mean, some guys take a whole day, and I don't just mean accessory, but they'll do speed work in the three big lifts, you know, yeah. uh, and that kind of stuff. And I even see bodybuilders change the tempo. I think it's good to change the tempo of training. So. Oh yeah, one of the worst things I ever do is go to slow tempo stuff, like three seconds down, two seconds pause, three seconds up. It's horrible. I always leave it very sore. <laughs> Yeah, but. it does make you sore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm quick to go back to my move the bar fast after I do a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. So, okay. All right. Well, cool. I'll, I'll talk to you next week. Yeah, that'll work. Talk to you later. Hey, sports nutrition fans. Join us in beautiful Clearwater Beach, Florida, June 20 and 21 for the 11th annual ISSN Conference and Expo. You'll learn the latest, greatest sports nutrition from the best minds in the business. Some of our speakers include Juan Carlos Santana, Dr. Mark Tarnopolsky, Gina Lombardi, and many, many more. You'll learn about intermittent fasting, how to exercise to offset poor eating, and also nutritional strategies for maintaining or gaining muscle mass. But the best part is you'll get to rub elbows with the best scientists in the business. The ISSN, why would you go anywhere else? Go to www.theissn.org for more information. That's www.theissn.org for more info. See you there. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of 
sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.